Hello, and welcome to the Lakewood Anglican Podcast. My name is Deacon Mark Hoddle, and I'm glad you have found us. We put up various content from time to time. Most of it's the sermons that are given at our weekly worship services. Uh, This episode's a little different, though, because it's from a Bible study we're doing at the moment. Uh, The Bible study we're going through is called Scripture Through the Eyes of Genesis. We're looking at the beginning of the book of Genesis, especially chapters 1 through 4, and using what we learn there to better understand all of the account that follows of our Lord's actions that are uh, related as the story unfolds in the rest of Scripture. I hope you enjoy the study and will let us know if it's helpful or if you want to learn more. You can contact us using the email office at lakewoodanglican.com or find us on the web at lakewoodanglican.com or on Facebook. All that being said, let's get started. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the, go- of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, 
and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, and the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves for themselves together, and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit to the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The servant deceived me, and I ate. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that he turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Anything catch anyone's attention? I feel like uh, <laughs> the last statement by God in, in chapter three is kind of weird. He first off references us at some point. He says like, look, 22. Oh, like one of us and knowing good and evil. But then also it doesn't seem like he finishes his sentence, like he, or at least the way it's it's written in, Gen in our version of it. It looks like he kind of cuts off the sentence 
and doesn't really finish the thought. Uh, take also from the tree of life and eat and live throughout the ages. And it just kind of. There's like an M dash. And then it just says, and there, and therefore the Lord God sent out him, sent him out from the garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. Seems like there, there should have been a, at least the way it's written, the, a completion of a thought there. I don't know. I guess the completion is that he sent him out, but it seems a little odd. Yeah, like they, they, they could have put the translator or whomever, I don't know, could have put a period there instead of a instead dash. Instead of an M dash, yeah. Right. Yeah. Which in the original Hebrew, there's no punctuation whatsoever. Right. Yeah. So maybe it's just the choice to put a punctuation mark there that seems confusing to me. <laughs> I think it's, it's actually the ellipsis in English is good punctuation because uh, I've got it in my version too. You probably can't see it, but just this barely. is just barely. This is the that uh, Hebrew or Jewish translation that I've got. So the Jewish scholar, so he's he's working in his mother tongue. A Jewish scholar, when he puts it in English, puts the dash in. So I'm suspecting if that I, we dug at it and started studying the grammar of the sentence, the reason why the dash is there is because the sentence does just leave off. Which, this is training ground, like we've said, right? This is where we learn how to read scripture. Um, so I think that's uh, actually a quite significant observation. In fact, let me let me take you one that to, to one that's a little easier. Let me get the reference for you. I need another Bible. Uh, hang on. You know, notice, Holly, uh, I, I thought you picked up well on the, remember how we talked about we, the, you know, that this is again saying the man has become like one of us, you know, it's that plural. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that the switches from the singular to the plural, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought so, too. Okay, this will be easier to suss out than this little bit in Genesis. Uh, go to Matthew chapter 14, and we're going to look specifically at verse 19. And what's everyone working in? ESV. ESV, ESV. I think Revised Standard. Revised Standard. NIV. NIV. Okay, so we've got a few translations. That's good. I'm going to pull it up here. Matthew 14, verse 19. Is that Matthew 14, 19. Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is really interesting. The interesting bit. All right. So the King James Version is the only one who translates it accurately. Okay. So let's just read verse 19. Uh, and it says, then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. This is the feeding of the 5,000. So, right, you've got a bunch of people. They've been hanging out with him all day, and he wants to feed them. So he says, go sit down. 
sit down in the grass and he takes these five loaves and two fishes that they found amongst the people and he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and if it's translating the Greek directly, it should also say, or it should say next, and the disciples to the crowds. You probably have more than that. Yeah, Not too them. much. Though. Right, okay. and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Yep. So your, your Bible translators are being helpful in an unhelpful way. <laughs> uh, because they're robbing from you the point of this sentence from Mark, or at least part of the point, by trying to help you understand what it actually says in Greek. So what it actually says is, then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples to the crowds. So the verb is missing in the second portion. So he broke the loaves, and he, Jesus, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples to the crowds. Is that saying the disciples also took, I mean, maybe I'm just guessing, but like, are they also taking part in the miracle then? Like, are the disciples also multiplying the loaves, or I'm trying to think of like, what would be the difference there with not including that verb? Yeah, this is called an ellipse. Um, which is what we ran into in Genesis 3, which is why I brought us here. Um, it's, it's not that the disciples are being the actor in the miracle. It's intentionally removing a verb. When you remove a verb in this way in Greek, you remove an unnecessary word because you can fill that word in either by context or you borrow a previous verb and put it in there. So then what, what about, so if, if you fill in, gave them, or to give uh -huh. as a previous verb, then what about the translator's work is inappropriate? <laughs> well, see, this is where we, you get to translations. Is in Greek, you can leave that word out and you have a, a Greek structural form, which is acceptable. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you're, you're, you're writing good Greek grammar, but not in English. If you leave out the verb, you can read that. And Jesus gave the bread and the disciples to the crowd. Oh, okay, I see. Right? He gave the bread to the disciples and the disciples to the crowd, like here, you disciples eat this bread. Okay, good. Are you done? Great. You crowd eat these disciples. So leaving out gave is kind of a big leave out, right? Which is why the translator is like, no, 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 no. That's not what it's saying in the Greek. So we're going to put, and the disciples gave it to the crowd, right? Because you can't do that in English, but you can do that in Greek. So in Greek, you have the option. If I'm going to write this sentence, I've got the option of putting in the verb in the second half, which is perfectly fine. 
Or I have the option of leaving out the verb in the second half, which is also perfectly fine. And one of the ways scripture does its sense making, and it actually does it a lot, like wildly a lot, is it leaves out information that otherwise might be very helpful. And the reason why it leaves out that information is for you to go, hey, there's a piece of information here that might be very helpful, and they left it out. I wonder why they bothered to leave it out. Maybe I should think about this for a little bit. And then you go get a cup of coffee, and you put your feet up, and you sit and just kind of think about it or take a walk and muse on it. So if you've got a sentence where it says, Jesus gave something, and then the disciples gave something, but the writer doesn't want you to read give next to the disciples. He wants you to fill it in there because that's good Greek grammar, but he doesn't want you to read the word. He wants you to be like, huh, they intentionally left out give. Why do you think the writer intentionally leaves out give next to the disciples? I was just going to say the, the giving is from Christ himself. Yeah. They pass yeah. it out. They're like the foot soldiers, but they're not the ones that provided that, right? Exactly. That's why he leaves it out, because he wants you to go, hmm, multiple people are giving things, but only one person is giving things. Only mm -hmm. Jesus is giving things, right? Mm -hmm. uh, well done. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how in, in scripture, that's how ellipsis works when you leave a hole like that and you're like hmm, why they leave the hole and what's the context and and sometimes it's i want to pay attention to the hole and what should i be putting here and is that significant and sometimes it's i don't want to pay attention to this hole well what around here should be in the hole and i'm going to go pay attention to where it is and the importance of it yeah Sort of like uh, when I was talking about a couple classes back, the fact that the very beginning of Genesis 1 is actually very bad Hebrew grammar to begin a sentence with a preposition. That's one of those, the author is doing something screwy. You're like, why are you, why are you writing a, a bad grammatical sentence? And then you, you sit and have your cup of tea and think about it. Like, oh because you want me to focus on that preposition and the preposition is in the beginning. That's what's really important here. But doesn't this seem very academic that unless you're trained or, you know, I think reading the Bible should be enjoyable and this feels more like a homework assignment. I mean, why, why? I, I feel overestimated by the author, right? <laughs> what, what's your time, though? I mean, uh, I might not be the most academic, at least in the training of seminary, maybe in college stuff, but I think you can still, I mean, depending on the translation, and maybe that's just kind of on the translator's choice, back in Genesis, at least, there's just an M dash and nothing happens. So at least I think that would stick out to maybe the average 
reader, I would think. Yeah. But I, I think I see what it meant now, but I don't know if I would have figured out what it meant without Mark's explanation. So that's yes, that Right. That's it, Holly. Right. I, that's it. That well put. I agree with you. I think I have it figured out. Yeah. yeah. But I don't yeah. know if I would have gotten there without that example of like, okay, I think I kind of know what's going on now, but. Right. But maybe after this class as uh, individual private readers, then we might be more sensitive to that kind of clue. Well, at the same time, I mean, how many Christians throughout the ages have been even been able to read the Bible? So, right. <laughs> I mean, I think there's been a certain amount of assistance needed maybe throughout time mm -hmm. uh, with understanding the, the Bible, whether it's this kind of nuance or even just somebody's reading it to you because you can't read it. So, I don't know. In answer to your question, I have a couple, couple things to think about. What's your favorite uh, literature? What's your literature that's, that's the easiest to read? You can pick it up and relax to it. For me, I would say fiction. Okay, and maybe some genre within that? Mystery. Mystery. Mm -hmm. So mystery has a form, right? Mystery has a set way of walking through things. You've got to set up the situation, and then you have to bring up a, a problem, a conundrum. And then the rest of the mystery is trying to figure out what's going to happen. And you've got stock characters in mystery, right? So if a person's walking down the street and they notice someone in a long trench coat and a hat pulled down, you know what that character is in the mystery, right? That character mm -hmm. walks around a corner and you're like, ooh, that person's important. Yeah. yeah. But you didn't know that the first time you read it. So you've learned to read mystery, and now it's easy to read because you know who the stock characters are and you know how it does its sense making, and it becomes this very relaxing, I can just pick this up and read it, right? So I am learning as I working on this myself is no one ever taught me the stock characters or no one showed me like how it does its overall sense making. And so because of that, stories seem weird and disjointed and I don't get the point of them because when the guy in the trench coat and the hat walks past, I'm just like, I don't even know what to make of that. Do I pay attention to this? Do I not pay attention to this? Is he bad? Is he good? I, I don't know. And that's what we're doing. That's what I've been doing, learning that. And that's what I'm trying to give to you guys. The Here's the stock characters. Here's the, this is what the trench coat means, and et cetera, et cetera. Here's the clues. Here's the Here clues. are the clues, yeah. Right. And if we don't know those, scripture is going to seem very disjointed and unapproachable. But as you pick those up, then when you start a story, you're going to be like, oh, I, I know the story. I've read the story before. I read this back in chapter four, and now it's in chapter 37, but I know how things are going to go. And because I know how things are going to go, I can pay attention to the subtle differences, and I can see the significance of interactions that before just seemed like weird interactions. So part of that is all of us, myself included, very much myself included, are learning 
the stock characters and the sense making of how all of this fits together. Um, so if it feels like highly academic is because we're doing the early reader learning portion. And then second of all, in terms of the, you know, talking about Greek and the academic stuff, some of this is academic, like I'm giving you Greek words and Greek syntax, and Hebrew words, and Hebrew syntax and whatnot. And does God expect you to learn all of that? I don't think so. That's why we're reading an English Bible. Is it actually within your grasp to learn some of that stuff? Oh yeah, definitely. But I want us to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to give perspective on kind of the interchange we're having at the moment. So I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Remember, this is the chapter on spiritual gifts, right? And Paul's talking about there are different spiritual gifts, but one spirit. They're all, they all come from the Holy Spirit, but you see it different ways and different people in different areas of the church. And then you get to verse 27, and he's kind of summing up, and he says, now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And he, and he goes into love. And Paul's point here is like, hey, we all have different roles, and part of this different roles is the teacher aspect. It's like in every congregation, if the congregation is healthy, you're going to have Bible nerds who are like, yes, I want to study Hebrew syntax, but not everyone's going to want to do that. And they're there for the benefit of everyone else so that they can have the conversations and point things out and make them accessible. And they do the hard work in their area to make it accessible to others, while others do the hard work in their own gifting area and you know, serve back and forth, right? So the academic can, can, to some extent, always stay academic, and that's OK. Thanks for being our Bible nerd. <laughs> I'm doing my best. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll get you a t-shirt at the end. <laughs> I would love a t-shirt that said Bible nerd. Okay, so there's an answer to your wise thing. Why do we just leave off? One of the learning points that the opening chapters of the Bible is teaching us is like, hey, when I leave something out or leave something more obscure than perhaps I needed to, the reason is because I want you to make yourself a cup of tea and take a long walk and think about it because there's something to be mined here and in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, when you're willing to take a walk and spend time with God and, and try to understand what he's telling you, he can open up your understanding to all truth, right? Um, that hole might be able to be filled by multiple things. 
that the Holy Spirit will bring up to us and point out and make show us the connections in Scripture, the, the good grounded connections that at different times and in different ways are completely appropriate. So oh. we learned something else about Scripture tonight. Look for the holes. I think I've filled like maybe half of the hole, maybe now that I've been on my proverbial walk whilst okay. we've been discussing some other stuff. Yeah. If we don't if you don't mind me jumping back now. Sure. Um, so I'll just reread this again because I think it, it helps. Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. So I think what's missing for me is the consequence. So he, he says, I mean, there is a consequence, but I guess what is the consequence of, okay, so God is saying man has done something and he might do something else. And if he does the second thing, there's going to be a consequence, but I don't know what it is. Does that make sense? Like the thing that he did wrong first was eating of the knowledge of good and evil. And now he might eat of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And there's kind of an implied, like, because of that, there's going to be a consequence to him eating of the tree of life. Therefore, I'm going to stop him. I'm not going to let him do that thing. But we don't really know what that consequence is necessarily because from our perspective, the tree of life should be a good thing. Like from all the other indicators throughout the Bible, the tree of life is a wonderful thing. So yep. why did God stop him? Yeah. He has stopped him for some reason. Um, I guess maybe because it's not the appointed time as we hear throughout the Gospels. But um, there's there's some reason that God makes him not do that and kicks him out, essentially, to prevent him from eating of the tree of life. Yeah. So I think that's what's missing, but I don't entirely understand why it's missing because we don't know why God would stop him when we could have been done with this whole thing in that mm -hmm. sentence, essentially. You're completely tracking in the right direction, Holly. Yeah. But I'm not going to fill in the other half okay. because it will be me more rewarding to you if, if, as we study, you keep musing on that. Catherine, if you want to pitch something that's fine i'm just not gonna do you want me not to i don't know no no you should yeah this the, uh, part of this is i want you i never want you to grow to the point where you're dependent on me to fill the answers like the whole point of this is to give you the skills that you can do study too and you might not read it in the greek or the hebrew but you're more than capable and part of my job as clergy is to equip you to do that I don't want you dependent on me. I want you all able to do this on your own and, and then share and disciple others. So take a swing, Catherine. I guess my my thought of it when you're talking about that, Holly, is if it if it happens now, we don't need the rest of scripture. Like it's just fixed, right? But since God has at that point like cast us out, we're not we wouldn't be living forever with God. So really it would be terrible, right? Because it would be et eternal life uh, in separation, one would think, right? Because I guess he hasn't 
his idea is like, well, maybe, but um, when he says, now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life, that, 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 I'm going to drive him away. So he'll be separated, but I don't know. I think there's some hope in that. But like not permanently separated. Yeah, I kind of see what you're saying. I think that, I think what, I like that idea, but at the same time, I don't know, do we have the context for what the tree of life is at this point to know? Because like the only other reference I can find to the tree of life so far is in 2.9, where it just says the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that's it. And then he talks about some rivers for a really long time. And you can get into the river of life and stuff too. But that's all we say about it. And this is kind of the, as far as I can tell, the only next reference to it is now. Um, so how do we fill in the gap between those true two tree of life references then? If other than the fact that maybe I'm just massively overthinking it, other than the fact that God says here, the tree of life means you live forever. But I, I do like what you're saying, Catherine, because I think, right, there's got to be a reason that God stops him. So, mm -hmm. But God also never prevents him from eating of the tree of life. That's not one of the trees that he for, forbids him from eating either. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'll stop, I'll stop word vomiting now. But no, you, this, is, this is great. This is great. This is, this is wrestling with scripture. This is Jewish meditation literature where you have to like read it and then think about it. And when you come to the end of your uh, thinking and hypothesis of what does this mean, then you've got to be like, well, I'll think about it. I'll pray about it. I'll listen. And you know what? I'll go read other stuff because if I go read other books where this idea is developed, then once I see it developed somewhere else, I might be able to come back and read it with a deeper understanding of the tree and having that deeper understanding get what they're doing with it here. So that was awesome. That's that's the kind of stuff I, I want happening in our study together. Sorry, I jumped on. You were gonna say something, I think, too. But I was also wondering, it, it I, I, what's, what's hanging me up is the, the break is like in the quote. And in this case, it's a quote as opposed to like Matthew, where it was just like, you know, the author telling you what happened. Discourse. And um, <clears throat> so it's like, is the, is the break in the quote? Like did, did the Lord God stop speaking or did somebody just be like, well, he's rambling. I'm just going to stop writing down what he's saying now. Because <laughs> that seems like, <laughs> like, why, what, what, don't we want to know everything that the God said? Yeah. Talking to. I mean, I assume he's kind of talking amongst himself, as it were, but. Maybe he didn't want to share what that bad part was, would be. Maybe. Maybe it's too much to hear at this point in the story. Yeah. Your question, Seth, actually brings us to a different, different question that I think is really important here at the beginning. 
of scripture to ask ourselves. And that's when we say scripture is uh, written by people and inspired by the Holy Spirit. Like what, what do we mean by that? So as you think about scripture and it being inspired by the Holy Spirit, what's your concept of what was going on when someone sat down and wrote this? Like, how do you imagine that in your mind? I mean, <clears throat> I imagine it as, um, yeah, like somebody um, writing it, but like the words aren't coming from them. They're being being told what to say in a way, whether it's, you know, maybe they're just, the words are coming to their mind as they're, they're writing it down or it's kind of like, if I, if I, if I want to think about like how this actually might've happened, that's kind of how I think about it. Kind of like in, in, in my church growing up, um, we believed in the gifts of the spirit and we would sometimes have people like singing songs in tongues and, and stuff like that during a church service. And I don't know, that's kind of how I always was kind of taught that that's kind of how that thing went. Okay. Yeah. What about other folks? What, what concept do you have of the divine inspiration of scripture? I always thought it was, um, as a person was writing his thoughts, those thoughts were coming from God. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like God was talking to him or dictating to him, but as he wrote, it just kind of flowed out and it was the thoughts from God. Mm -hmm. So very, very stream of consciousness, but the consciousness was giving out like, fully developed, fleshed out. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I was just going to say, that describes my kind of concept of that also. But now, uh, you know, an interesting perspective is, say, as the Apostle Paul effectively writes huge sections of the New Testament, does he ever cross anything out and try it again? Or is that so uh, God-breathed into his thought process that there's no reason to cross it out? You've got it all the first time around. Or is yeah. there some, some human struggle in there? Well, and that's a good point, Karen, of like, especially with Paul as an example, I mean, Paul was not writing those things down, like, at least with Genesis, there's a certain amount of, or even most of the Old Testament, there's a certain amount of history telling it, of like, I am writing this down so that, you know, conceivably, based on other history books, it was probably maybe orally told previously and then written down at some point, but um, Paul is writing these letters to other churches, not with the intent of keeping a history, he's usually writing them to tell them off a little bit, say, sure. you've screwed up, and not sure. with the intent necessarily of getting it into, uh, uh, to anybody else reading it. So I think mm -hmm. 
that is something I struggle with sometimes of like at some point then also and I think obviously there's probably divine inspiration behind the discernment too but like people had to choose what went into the bible and like there were decisions made of what is scripture so in addition to the writing aspect of it there was the deciding aspect of it too and I don't you know there's at least a certain amount of evidence that not everybody agreed because you have like parts of different books of the bible where there's like parentheses out parts where it's like this wasn't in part of the bible but it's in this bible you know so mm-hmm. i don't know yeah well, paul had a scribe and uh i didn't really pick that up until you go along and then suddenly the scribe says oh by the way say hi to so and so from me and it's like, yeah. oh, wait a minute, what's going on here? Does <laughs> <laughs> God really need us to have this part? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and um, Scripture actually says a lot about how it's put together. There's there's many, many references in it about who wrote what, and you get those very human interactions like you were talking about, Dad. And there's there's no scandal there in understanding it as inspired by the Holy Spirit. And if people who are not Christians are reading this, bringing it up and saying like, oh, look, this is man-made. Like, of course, haven't you read Genesis 1 and 2? What are people supposed to be? What were they created as? Image of God. Yeah, his images. So if we've got that role, don't you think he's going to involve us in writing his word to us? He's always wanted us in that role. He's not going to ignore that role. In fact, he's he's bent on including us in that role to the point where he really gets himself in some difficult situations because he's including people in his role. You look at Abraham when he lies about Sarah being his wife. And Abraham shows up, lies, and someone, the first instance is Pharaoh. Pharaoh takes Sarah to be his concubine because she's pretty. And then Pharaoh has plagues upon him. And you've got this situation where, like, God has told Abraham, I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And taking his wife is certainly a curse. And God's put in this difficult situation of saying, you're my man, and I told you I would defend you. And you lied to someone, and your lie got you in this situation. But I told you I'd defend you. And so here you go, Pharaoh. Here's your curses. Don't touch her. So yeah, just a couple examples of places where the Bible talks about how it's put together. One is that I've got for you is in 2 Kings chapter 1. Uh, and it's talking about the king Ahaz. And you get to the end of the chapter. I'm in verse 17. It says, So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jerom became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaz had no son. Now, the rest of the acts of Ahaz that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? 
So the author is telling you, like, here's my source material. I, I got the story out of the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. So he's taking something else. There's some other book that's a history book. It's just a, 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 an account, right? And he's gone and he's taken a couple of stories, important ones, and he's put them here because by putting them here in this way, you're going to understand how the overall story develops. And that's why um, Second Kings, like we put it in our books, this is history, right? Mentally, we slate this in our English Bibles as part of the historical account. But it's not. It's not in the history section in the Jewish breakup. It's in the prophet section. So... The, I would the, that be to me, of course, you know, I'm speaking as a Christian reader. To me, it so clearly seems history. I don't, I don't even see any room for, for ambiguity on it. But perhaps you haven't noticed before that someone took it out of a history book and put it here for a reason and didn't take all of it. And they took some of it. And the reason he only took some of it is he doesn't want you to just know the history. He wants you to know the significance of the history, which is mm -hmm. why he chose what he chose and wrote it how he wrote it because he wants you to understand the, the deeper meanings behind what was going on at that point in time in the overall arc of the story of God's people and his redemption. Isn't it true that like then he kind of, I mean, at least sticking in second Kings, that that sentence, because that formation kind of comes up over and over again, like, isn't this in Chronicles? Just go read Chronicles. Yep. Uh, it's usually following the... Well, first off, the death of the king and uh, the crowning of the new king, but also the kind of pronouncement as to if the king was good or not. Like a lot of times it says, and he walked in the way of his ways of his father and did good, or he walked in the way of his fathers and worshipped idols. Um, so it's more the pronouncement of his moral character than, I guess, a history. And I, I agree, Karen. I think to me it reads like a history, too. Mm -hmm. like it reads like, and he did this, and he was bad, moving on. But it's more of a moral judgment on the person than actually a chronicle of what he did. It's more his uh, heart in doing it. Mm -hmm. And if it's a moral judgment, if we know at the end, like we get done with the story, and we're like, and all this stuff was good, or all this stuff was bad, then knowing like that's the conclusion, what do we go back and look at the story for? Remember what Torah means? Law. Law is how it's frequently translated, but that's not how I've been translating it for you, has it? Wisdom, right? Instruction. Instruction, yeah. Yeah. So if Torah is instruction, that's what it's supposed to be doing. It's, it's, this is teaching you what's good and what's bad instructing you it's training you it's not giving you laws that you have to follow and you know to jump over the bar it's saying if you want to know who god is and his ways and how to live like him here read this story about ahaz he wasn't good look at how he behaved look at 
understand the heart of God if this is not his heart, which makes it instruction, not just a legal, don't mm -hmm. spit on the sidewalk. Make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. Okay. This is a really interesting one, which I found fascinating. Okay, so in Jeremiah 36, you get this. Uh, I'm starting in verse 1. It says, In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, his words came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Now, this word came from Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations. From that day I spoke to you all the days of Josiah until the day. That's a long time. That's like 20 years. So God lets Jeremiah wandering around as his prophet telling things to people for 20 years. And after 20 years, he's like, oh yeah, write that down. All that stuff for the last 20 years I've been telling you, go get pen and paper and write that down now. It's a long gap. So uh, verse three, it may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. It's like, I've been, I've been giving you things to tell people for 20 years and it's been spaced out. It's been 20 years. So I want you to go back and think about all the stuff I've told you for 20 years and write it down all in one spot. So it's like condensed. It's not like a sip of orange juice every few weeks. It's like, here's a jug of it and drink it all at once. It might make an impression. That's essentially what God's saying. So verse four, then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll all the dictation of Jeremiah, all the words of the Lord that he had spoken to him. So you, I mean, it's this image of Jeremiah and Baruch are hanging out and Baruch's like, great, what, what did he tell you? What, what should I write down? And Jeremiah is having to recall 20 years of ministry of, uh, right, okay, that he had me do this weird thing this one time. Let me tell you about it. Let's write that down, okay? And, and they keep going through the history and, and trying to record it. Um, and five says, and Jeremiah ordered Baruch saying, I am banned from going to the house of the Lord. So you are to go on the day of fasting and the hearing of all the people in the Lord's house. And you shall read the words of the Lord from the scroll that you have written at my dictation. He's like, the king won't let me show up. So you're going to go in my place and you got to read the scroll. Okay. Skipping forward to 20. So they went into the court of the king, having put the scroll in the chamber of Elishama the secretary, and they reported all the words to the king. And king sent Jehudai to get the scroll, and he took it from the chamber of Elishama, the secretary. And Jehudah read it to the king and all the officials who stood beside the king. Okay, so the king's heard about the scroll. He's like, okay, you know, like, bring it to me. And he tells this guy, all right, we're all here. Read it. Tell me what this what does Isaiah have for us now? What did he write down? 
22. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter house, and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. And Jehudai read three or four columns. And then the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. You gotta think, when Baruch hears this, he's gotta be going like, oh, I should have made a copy. I should have made a copy. <laughs> oh, man. All oh, those many days, I should have made a copy. Fire talking. <laughs> and they said, they, the king and his servants heard of all, and they weren't afraid. Even when a couple of them urged the king, oh, don't burn that, don't burn that. He didn't listen to them. Uh, okay, so in 27, after the king had burned the scroll with the words that Baruch had wrote at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, take another scroll and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, <laughs> the king of Judah, has burned. And this is where I get the Baruch, or Baruch saying, like, I should have made a copy. Like, the text says, he didn't have a copy, <laughs> and it got burned. <laughs> and... God was like, mm, we're going to need those. Write it again. <laughs> okay, and 32. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch, the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And many similar words were added to them. So... My question is, maybe it wasn't good enough the first time, so God had to take over. My question and answer to that is, do you see that in the text? No. But it, it could imply it, like other things we've been reading tonight. It could. But if there isn't anything in the grammar or specifically laid out in the story to give that plot hole for you to fill intentionally, if you're having to create the plot hole. Um, but, but it says things were ice. added. It says things were added. That tells me, well, it got better. Yeah. Or it got longer. Could have. <laughs> Certainly got yeah. longer. And the fascinating <laughs> thing is, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are multiple versions of Jeremiah. There's a shorter version and there's a longer version. Which one do we get? You get the longer version. That's what we have in our translation. But, um, but how would there even be a shorter version? Because we just read about the shorter version being burned. Yeah. So you know, you get you get to the Dead Sea Scroll era. And the fact of the matter is different versions of Jeremiah were floating around and being treated as scripture by God's people. And they didn't have a problem with that. Now, at some point when things started to get narrowed down and tightened up, they're like, hmm, longer version, shorter version, longer version, shorter version. Well, the longer version has everything in the shorter version, so let's take the longer version because now we get everything. But now this is scripture witnessing to us, right? We've got one guy saying, hey, I've got source material. 
Like I, I took this from this other book and the rest of it's there if you want to read more about Ahaz. And then we've got an account of how things were written out. God tells Jeremiah and Baruch, hey, go sit down, review a couple decades of ministry, and write down what I told you. And then it gets burned, and he's got to do it again. So what we're seeing in Scripture's witness about how Scripture is written, it's, it's very kind of gritty, yeah? It's very... It's got a very high level of human interaction with it. So when you look at the New Testament, which we also consider to be inspired, which we also consider to be given by the Holy Spirit, you run into Paul saying things like, hey, come to me as soon as you can, bring the winter cloak, i.e. it's cold here, <laughs> bring my heavy cloak, and don't forget my, and the term is notebooks, like don't forget my notebooks, bring those too. And, and it gives us a window into Paul's writing of his letters. He had notebooks. He must have been keeping notes about something. When you see the relationship between the letter that shows up in, in later letters, he's, he's taking notes in like formulating his next letter and kind of working through it. What am I going to say? How am I going to say it? And it tells us it's a joint effort of multiple people, right? So it says, for example, Galatians, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. Philippians, Paul, and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. First Thessalonians, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So Paul, even in these letters, he's like, I'm not the only one who contributed to this. I've got other people who are writing this letter with me and like we've talked through it and we've decided what we want to say and how we want to say it. And part of that is the job of scribes too, or that era. You would kind of dictate something and the scribe would be like, that's good, but let's take these three words and use this word for those three words because ink and paper are super expensive. A letter, one of these letters, in modern day cost is like $4,000 to send that letter at that time. So you don't just sit down and dash something off. It's a very, very careful process. And you spend time being sure like, how many words do I need to say this? Because each word is very expensive. And if you think about it though, like while there's not necessarily the same cost associated with it, but like, you know, I work with professional writers for a living and like nobody writes something by themselves or if you do, you don't have a very good manager. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a very collaborative effort. And even if you think about something maybe outside of the professional realm, more of the personal realm, you know, if I were to say write an email to somebody to let them know something, you know, there's a very solid chance that I mentioned it to Seth along the way or I mentioned it to a friend along the way. 
So that makes sense of like, this isn't just Paul, it's Paul and the people around him who we probably discussed, especially if it's really difficult issues, like yeah. not just thinking about like this really deep problem by himself. He probably talked, talked it through with some other people to get some advice. So that makes sense. I'm going to drop off Mark, but I'm hung up on the beginning of chapter 36 in Jeremiah. Jeremiah where, where uh, the Lord says to Jeremiah, hey, we got to get this recorded. You know, what you've been doing, let, let's get it recorded. Yeah. What I don't understand is why was Jeremiah banned from the temple? Oh, uh, <laughs> that's a good question. I don't know the exact answer at the moment. Uh, I think... Uh, one of the kings or priests got upset at him, which is not surprising. Um, Earlier in the um, in the book. Yeah, I'll I'll take a look and find the reason and let you know. Okay. Very good. Well, thank you, everyone. Have a good evening. We will look forward to our musings. <laughs> Good night now. Night. Hey. I actually just looked it up because I was curious. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Apparently, at least, again, this is Wikipedia, so maybe the not, not the most uh, reliable, but there are a couple does it people have suggesting. A, hmm? it, does it have a reference, a textual reference? It does. What as chapter? far as what? what verse it's still just 36 5 it's actually a citation yeah citations better it's it's not referencing another part of jeremiah it's just a couple of theologians uh positing possible reasons so it doesn't seem like there is a a state interesting um, there there's two suggestions one is just that perhaps he had some kind of ceremonial uncleanliness that was preventing him from going to the temple Mm -hmm. uh, but the other one was that in Jeremiah 26, he was tried in front of the princes. And perhaps because of that, there was some finding perhaps on it like that. He couldn't. Wasn't allowed to come anymore. Wasn't allowed to come back or something, even though it's not stated. So uh -huh. anyways. But it doesn't seem like there's a specific scriptural reference that it's necessarily hearkening back to saying like, and Jeremiah was banned. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thanks for looking at that. There you go. Oh. So um yeah, what do you, we mused a little bit about how we thought scripture was written, and then we looked about what scripture says about how it was written. How does that sit with you. What's your reaction? Well, I think um, different, I think different parts of it were written different ways. That's certainly true. So it does make me think a little bit more about how, how was Genesis written, but, uh, and, you know, it is very different from, you know, Paul's letter or a recording of history in that, you know, nobody was there. Yeah. 
but you know it definitely would make sense if you know it, it could have been collaborated on the writings of it it, it may not have just been one person with a, a stream of consciousness it could have been I think that's interesting it kind of gets back to the point of what we've been talking about for the past six months or whatever, which is that, you know, the, the logical side of me, perhaps, or the intellectual, where I get kind of hung up on the, okay, the councils decided that these were the books, and why didn't they include the Apocrypha, and like, because the Apocrypha seemed pretty good, too, and then, you know, why didn't they include stuff after Revelation, because there's probably was some other good stuff that people have written in the past 2,000 years, and, and all of that, but at the same time, when we see how many clear callbacks and references and pieces that are happening in the books that are there. Not that there might not be callbacks in some of the apocryphal books or whatever. Yeah. There's there's a clear tie um, that I think you could probably only call divinely inspired between the books that are present and the way they work together. Like, I mean, even those Genesis passages that I was trying to suss out the tree of life and its meaning, you know, clicking on all of the the cross references and stuff. Most of the cross references to the tree of life are revelation. So, you know, you're seeing these pieces and themes and words and ideas all coming back and persisting throughout the different types even of the historical and the oral histories or the law or the <laughs> or the psalms or the poetry you know all of these things you still see those themes running through all of them um so you can kind of understand why these were the ones that were chosen even though there probably are other solid books for reading out there too like the apocrypha sure. <laughs> so well and that's why as Anglicans in our tradition, we don't just ignore them. We do read them. They can they can give us insight into how things were written and what was going on historically and, and things like that. We don't treat them on the same level, but we don't need to be scared of them. I feel like some Protestants are just scared of them uh, or worried that they'll get lifted up and treated at the same level as scripture. And I, I think part of that is if you've got this idea of the writers of scripture go into this like trance or, or dictation and you just write it out. And when you're done, you kind of set down your pen and pick it up and be like, great. What, like, what did I write? Let's, let's see what's the word of the Lord. And then you read it yourself and you're like, oh, this is awesome. Um, if, if it's that kind of download experience, then another document which you're saying is carefully constructed by people, I don't want, I don't want to put this download experience next to this careful construction because it has, it has too much of man's fingerprints on it. Yeah. And so you get worried about letting those interact with them. But God tells us in Genesis 1, he wants our fingerprints on everything. 
And if you keep that distinction, this is scripture, and this helps us understand scripture, but it isn't on the same level. It doesn't need to be as scary as some traditions make it. Maybe that. Yeah, I feel like I've, I've, it's funny you say that trans thing, and that's when we were talking about like how we imagined scripture being written. It's not necessarily how I have, but I've definitely heard it described that way, or I feel like that was the the upbringing maybe I had. Um, I almost wonder, like, getting back to the beginning of Genesis, like, do we, is that a product of Christians being almost like afraid that they're the image of God? Like, essentially, like, a denial of the image of God within us and our ability to create at mm-hmm. that level to the point where it's like, it's almost like a, a rather lowly view of humanity of saying like, yeah. I'm so lowly that I couldn't even work with the inspiration of God unless he completely blacked out my brain, blacked out my soul and took over and I woke up and this is what, what, I, what I came up with. So it almost seems like a denial of our of our imagery of God to, to even think that way to a certain extent. I think you've put your finger on a big portion of it. Um, I think that's why part of the reason why some folks get worried about some of the ornate vestments because it it gives an idea of like you're important you're putting on this clothing and you're showing yourself to be important. And if they don't understand, well, the reason we're putting this on this clothing on is because we're, we're playing a role. It's like a drama and we're not us anymore. We're showing different aspects of who the church is and what they do. And yeah, you are important. God thinks you're very important. And if, if you have that high view of humanity, right. And there's a difference between, our view of humanity and our view of fallenness. We should have a low view of fallenness. Fallenness is we've fallen short of the glory of God and that's a big deal. But if we make that the definition of humanity, then we're not going to understand when we get to the New Testament and we run into things like you'll judge angels. And if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And the fact that we've had good works prepared for us since the beginning and that we are the light of Christ to the world, we're going to look at those things and we're either going to think we're not up to the task or we're not worthy of the task because we're focused on our sinfulness. But Jesus dealt with your sinfulness, right? That isn't part of your identity anymore. You're righteous. You've been declared righteous before God because of the blood of Christ, and that's been dealt with. Doesn't mean you have stopped sinning. We still wrestle with that, but your identity is no longer there. Your identity is in Christ. Uh, And being a saved image of God, baptized in water and, and made clean by the blood of Christ, anything you do is incredibly important we see this in hebrews it's (laughs) it's kind of funny you know you get to hebrews and there's the 
the chapter 11, which is this by faith thing. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commend, and it, it goes on, and you've got all these people show up in this. By faith, Abraham obeyed. There's 10 specific instances of God testing Abraham. And the word test in the Old Testament isn't like a, uh, here's a bar, can you jump over it? Test is a revealing, like I'm going to put you through a hard situation and it's going to reveal your true character. That's a test. That's, that's what we're saying in the Lord's Prayer, where we say, lead us not into temptation. A word that we translate temptation can also be translated as like the time of trial, the time of testing. Please don't, don't take me into tests. Don't take me into revealing my true character. And then we follow it up. But deliver me from, and, and in the Greek, it's a participle. So it actually reads, um, deliver me from the evil one, not just from evil as a concept, the evil one. We're back at the tree with Adam and Eve, where they get tested between the trees and the serpents there to, to lure them into the wrong tree. We're saying, please don't make me stand by those trees, but I know I'm going to stand by the trees. It's life. So when I do stand by those trees, don't let the evil one overcome me, right? Protect me from Satan. And Abraham has these 10 opportunities. If you look and count them up, he's got 10 opportunities. And he screws most of them up royally. Like his bit with um, Isaac on the mountain is like his shining star. And his bit of believing that he actually will have descendants is like his other shining star. And then everything else is just total mess up. But Hebrews, it's where like he gives away his wife multiple times, yeah, and like takes a random concubine and then sends her I, into the desert. And... Yeah, like we read it and he's like, Abraham, you're a screw up. But Hebrews gives us the perspective. Hebrews says, like he he's one of the great men of faith in our history, and he screwed up a lot. So what view does scripture have of humanity? Not fallenness, but humans, humanity. It's a very, very high view. Um, and we should have that view of ourselves and understand that when he says we're his ambassadors, we're his witnesses, we bear witness to Christ. It's a big deal. It's a very big deal. You're important. Jesus cares about you, and he thinks you're very important, and everything you do during the day is very important to him. Not because he's waiting to play whack-a-mole with you, but because he's made you new, and by your hands, new creation, and Eden life, life with God, and the blessings of God, it, they come through your hands to other people. You're a very important person in this world.
Yeah. Yeah. So um, as we close in reference to the decisions before the tree of uh, knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, uh, I want to leave you with just a little bit of Hebrew that you can muse on. Um, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is how most English translations, in fact, all that I know of, translate it. Um, but the two words there in Hebrew, good is uh, tov, and bad or evil is ra. And the word ra doesn't have a moral aspect to it. So if I say, uh, can you give me examples of things that are evil? You'll probably name things like murder, rape, theft, things that have evil intent, subjugation, slavery, things like that. Those are evil things. And, and the word raw does encompass them, but it also encompasses things like, I hit my thumb with a hammer while I was nailing in. That's raw. Or I baked a cake and the center fell. That's raw. It's just bad. Like It's not that there's a moral component to it. It's just not desirable. It's a bad thing. So the tree of the knowledge of tov and ra, of good and bad, it's deciding what's good and bad. That's what's going on. That, that's the tree. It's where you decide what's good and bad. Um, and what happens is when humans say, okay, I have, I have this opportunity. I can eat from the knowledge, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And by eating that, it's me saying, I want to be the decider of good and evil or good and bad. I want to draw that line between the two. And eating from the tree of life is, I want God to draw that line. I want to be his image. I want to execute his will on earth. And we see throughout scripture, God wants us to know the difference between good and bad. That's what the Bible calls wisdom. That's biblical wisdom, knowing how to live well God's way. And we have whole books devoted to helping us understand where to draw that line between good and bad. And the fact that God's dwelling with Adam and Eve and going and walking with them, like he's regularly interacting with them. The scholars think that what that portion of the story is pointing to is he's giving them that knowledge. He's showing up and, and working with them and talking with them and helping them understand how to be his images. And they, by eating of that tree, it's like, I just want to jump to the end. Just, I'll, I'll do this. Let me eat and I'll do this myself. So what we're going to see is when we take on that role of drawing the line, we never draw it in the right place. So not only do we have the issue of Adam and Eve disobeying God and and notice disobeying God is the first place of drawing that line, right? Because he said, this is bad. If you eat from it, you will die, die. It's a, it's a double word there in Hebrew. It's like, you'll really die. And when Eve takes the fruit 
she's redrawing the line. She's doing exactly what that tree is about. She's saying, you've told me, you, God, have told me where to draw the line, and I want to draw it somewhere else. So when she takes the fruit and eats, it's the eating that culminates the decision. This is, if you think about this, this is where sin kind of draws its line. You can consider sinning, but you're not guilty until you actually do it, right? So she saw that it was good to eat and pleasing to the eye, but they don't actually get in trouble until they actually eat from it. Yeah. So throughout the rest of scripture, and this is a, a design pattern which shows up all the time, where people in front of circumstances where they have to choose, am I going to do it God's way or am I going to draw the line myself? And when they do it God's way, Eden life, full abundant life with God breaks out in them and to the people that are around them. And when they do it their own way, people die. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna spend more time on that next time in both the Sunday class and this class of exploring that. And then we're gonna hop forward and look at a couple situations because there are specific words in Hebrew that gets used in the Adam and Eve story that are end up being our trench coat guy in the hat, where when we run into those words in later story, we'll be like, I know this story. I've read this story before. This story doesn't go well. Um, so we're going to focus on that a little bit more next time. Questions before we wrap for the night? Nope. Okay. Thank you for coming. Thank you for learning, growing, helping me to grow as we're talking and I'm getting your insights and, and doing some work to prep this stuff. Uh, and for all that we've discussed here today, take that with you for the week to have your cup of tea and take your walks. In God's eyes, you are a very important person in this world to be his witness. So go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Guys, talk to y'all later. Good night. Good night. Thanks again for joining us. We hope this has been a helpful and encouraging time hanging out with myself and some of the other members of our congregation who were walking through this portion of Genesis. You know, we believe that the story of the Lord's activity throughout time to care for, to forgive, and to renew his creation, and especially people, his image bearers, has practical wisdom for our moment in history. And we hope you've gotten to know Jesus a little bit better through this time that you've spent with us. And we hope you join us again for our future episodes and continue learning and growing with us. God be with you.